You are now listening to the OrthoBullets podcast. This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to opiates and analgesic medications, as well as THA other complications, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with opiates and analgesic medications, and the first question reads, Two patients are discharged from a surgery center after upper extremity procedures. The surgeon gives them prescriptions for oral opioid analgesics. Patient A had open reduction and internal fixation of a distal radius fracture. Patient B had cubital tunnel release without transposition. Which of the following is most likely true regarding analgesic use? And the choices are 1. Patient A will use more medication than patient B. 2. Patient A will use less medication than patient B. 3. Analgesic use will be similar between patients A and B. 4. Both patients will consume more than 30 pills. And 5. A reasonable prescription is 40 pills with one refill for patient A and 40 pills with no refills for patient B. So a patient that's had ORAF will require more oral analgesia than a patient who has had a cubital tunnel release. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Patient A will use more medication than patient B. Patients undergoing bony procedures like ORIF and arthroplasty require more analgesia than patients undergoing soft tissue procedures like a carpal-slash-cubital tunnel release, trigger finger release, elbow, or shoulder arthroscopy. Overprescribing of opioid analgesia is a common problem. Many opioids are unused in the postoperative period by the patients for whom they were prescribed. Rogers et al. reviewed opioid use for oxycodone, hydrocodone, and propoxyphene after outpatient upper extremity surgery. Patients undergoing bony procedures used the most analgesia of 14 pills, while those undergoing soft tissue procedures used the least, 9 pills. Half took medication for less than or equal to 2 days. Mean opioid consumption was 10 pills. They recommended prescribing 15 tablets with one refill of a Schedule 3 opioid analgesic for elective outpatient upper extremity procedures. Stanek et al. proposed an educational assist device to guide pain management of postoperative hand conditions. They advocate no narcotics for trigger finger release, 10 narcotic pills for carpal tunnel, dequervanes, dupuytren's releases, and small joint fusions, 20 narcotic pills for wrist ganglion cysts, hand fracture ORIF, LRTI, and tendon transfers, and 40 narcotic pills for wrist fusion, open carpal tunnel surgery, and DRUJ reconstruction. Moving on to the next question, which of the following medications inhibits release of neurotransmitters by binding to presynaptic calcium channels? And the choices are 1. Denosumab, 2. Sertraline, 3. Tramadol, 4. Gabapentin, and 5. Linazolid. So gabapentin acts by inhibiting presynaptic calcium channels, thus preventing the release of neurotransmitters. Gabapentin, also known as Neurontin, is a medication that is commonly used to treat neuropathic pain. It acts by binding the alpha-2 delta subunit of voltage-dependent calcium channels on the presynaptic membrane. This serves to increase GABA synthesis as well as inhibit the release of excitatory neurotransmitters. These neurotransmitters are believed to be part of the pathway leading to neuropathic pain. Bennett et al. provide a review of the pharmacology of gabapentin for use in neuropathic pain. 
They note effective anti-hyperalgesic and anti-allodinic properties of gabapentin, but not significant anti-nociceptive action. Among patients with neuropathic pain, they found an average pain score reduction of 2.05 points on an 11-point Likert scale, which compared favorably to placebo. Meta et al. explored outcomes of gabapentin and pregabalin, otherwise known as Lyrica, for use in patients with spinal cord injury. Both agents were found to decrease pain and secondary conditions, such as sleep disturbance. They did not directly compare these agents to other analgesic medications. Guy et al. present a meta-analysis of the use of anticonvulsants, such as gabapentin, to treat pain in patients with spinal cord injury. Large effect size was seen in four of six studies looking at the effectiveness of gabapentin. So the correct answer to this question, asking which medication inhibits release of neurotransmitters by binding to presynaptic calcium channels, the answer is four, gabapentin. Moving on to the next question. A 35-year-old male presents with pain and limited range of motion three months after arthroscopic bank heart repair of his right shoulder. His postoperative course included a continuous intraarticular infusion pump for three days, use of a sling for four weeks, and initiation of passive range of motion below the level of the shoulder. At four weeks postoperatively, he started active range of motion exercises and started an isotonic strengthening program at the nine-week interval. Which of the following options is the most appropriate step in his management? And the choices are one, reassurance and appropriate follow-up, two, focused physical therapy on aggressive range of motion exercises and modalities, three, intraarticular injection of corticosteroids to decrease postoperative inflammation, four, shoulder radiograph series to assess for chondrolysis, and five, arthroscopic versus open bank art revision surgery for failed repair. So the patient in the question stem was issued an intraarticular infusion of lidocaine for pain control after his surgery and may have developed shoulder chondrolysis. This complication after the use of intraarticular pumps has recently become more well-known. The FDA has issued a warning on the administration of continuous intraarticular infusion of local anesthetics for pain control. So the correct answer to this question is four shoulder radiograph series to assess for chondrolysis is the most appropriate step in this patient's management. The FDA has reviewed 35 cases of patients developing chondrolysis after intraarticular infusions, some being as early as two months after their surgery. The average time of diagnosis in these cases with chondrolysis were at an average of 8.5 months after the infusion. The majority of the reported cases occurred following shoulder surgeries. Joint pain, stiffness, and loss of motion were the most common physical complaints. As a result of their findings, the FDA issued a warning for surgeons to be aware and monitor for signs and symptoms of chondrolysis. And moving on to the final question for this topic, what is the most appropriate delivery route for pain medication to a morbidly obese postoperative patient to ensure a therapeutic plasma concentration? And the choices are one, oral tablets, two, oral liquid solution, three subcutaneous injections, four intravenous patient-controlled analgesia based on actual body weight, and five intravenous patient-controlled analgesia based on ideal body weight. So the most appropriate and accurate route for delivery of pain medication in the morbidly obese is via intravenous patient-controlled analgesia based on the patient's ideal body weight, making five intravenous patient-controlled analgesia based on ideal body weight the correct answer to this question. 
This method of analgesia has the best chance of avoiding respiratory depression while also adequately controlling the patient's pain. Gus et al. discuss perioperative management of the obese orthopedic patient in their review. They note that using total body weight to dose lipophilic opioids, such as fentanyl, may overestimate dosing requirements in severely obese patients. As such, for obese individuals weighing 100 to 200 kilograms, fentanyl dosing weights of 100 to 108 kilograms are recommended to achieve the same therapeutic plasma concentrations as in non-obese patients. Furthermore, intramuscular injections in obese patients are rarely intramuscular. Rather, they are given into subcutaneous fat, where a poor blood supply makes analgesic absorption difficult to determine. A PCA is better suited to avoid subanalgesic troughs in plasma morphine concentration. And moving on to the final topic of THA, other complications, the first question reads, what percentage of patients with metal-on-metal hip resurfacings has asymptomatic pseudotumors? And the choices are 1, 5%, 2, 10%, 3, 20%, and 4, 40%. So based on a study performed by Kwan and Associates in 2010, the incidence of asymptomatic pseudotumors in metal-on-metal implants was approximately 5%. The study used MRI scans and ultrasound to assess the presence of pseudotumors. So the correct answer to this question is 1. 5% of patients with metal-on-metal hip resurfacings have asymptomatic pseudotumors. Moving on to the next question. What factor most significantly contributes to increased risk for pseudotumor formation in patients with metal-on-metal implants? And the choices are 1. Obesity, 2. Edge loading, 3. Female gender, and 4. Age older than 65. Obesity has not been directly associated with implant wear and pseudotumor formation. Patient factors that have been associated with increased pseudotumor formation are female gender and hip dysplasia. Studies have shown that edge loading, double heat treatment of metal implants, and the low carbon content of the bearing surfaces have all been associated with an increased incidence of pseudotumor formation and increased metal wear debris formation. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Edge loading. Moving on to the next question. 10-year follow-up studies of total hip replacements performed with modern alumina ceramic femoral heads and acetabular liners show what outcomes. And the choices are 1. Low incidence of osteolysis, squeaking noise, and ceramic head fractures. 2. Same incidence of osteolysis as metal polyethylene total hips of the same design. 3. Higher incidence of osteolysis in hips that make audible noises in vivo and four, elimination of ceramic head fractures resulting from use of improved biomaterials. So 10-year follow-up data have been published from a number of clinical centers worldwide that describe the outcomes of total hip arthroplasties performed with third-generation alumina ceramic bearings and metal polyethylene control hips often were included in the same series. These studies show no osteolysis around well-fixed metal components and a small incidence of revision surgery to address bearing noise, that is squeaking, or ceramic femoral head fracture. Newer ceramic materials are associated with satisfactory outcomes in terms of elimination of wear-mediated osteolysis, but problems such as bearing noise and catastrophic femoral head failure have not been eliminated even though the risk for these complications is small and much improved compared to risk associated with earlier generations of ceramic bearings. 
So the correct answer to this question, asking about 10-year follow-up studies of total hip replacements performed with modern alumina ceramic femoral heads and acetabular liners, is one, that there is a low incidence of osteolysis, squeaking noise, and ceramic head fractures. Moving on to the next question. A 67-year-old female complains of anterior groin pain one year following a primary uncemented total hip arthroplasty. The pain is exacerbated when she tries to climb stairs or get up from a seated position. She denies any recent fevers or chills. On physical exam, the pain is reproduced with resisted seated hip flexion. Laboratory analysis, including white blood cells, ESR, and CRP are within normal limits. Radiographs reveal that the components are appropriately positioned without evidence of loosening or fracture. Which of the following is the most appropriate at this time? And the choices are 1. Revision of the acetabular component. 2. Image-guided diagnostic injection of lidocaine into the iliopsoas tendon sheath. 3. Hip aspiration. 4. Bone scan. And 5. Conservative management, including activity modifications, NSAIDs, and physical therapy. So the patient in the question stems history and physical exam are most consistent with iliopsoas impingement. The diagnosis is most reliably confirmed with a diagnostic-slash-therapeutic injection of steroid or lidocaine into the iliopsoas tendon sheath. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Image-guided diagnostic injection of lidocaine into the iliopsoas tendon sheath. Iliopsoas tendonitis following total hip arthroplasty is an uncommon but treatable cause of anterior groin pain following total hip arthroplasty. The true incidence is unknown, but some studies suggest it is the cause of a painful total hip arthroplasty in up to 4.3% of cases. Potential causes include a malpositioned acetabular component, excessively long screws, limb length discrepancy, or retained cement. Diagnosis is confirmed by injecting the iliopsoas tendon sheath. Most cases are refractory to conservative management and often require surgical intervention. In the case of a malpositioned acetabular component, revision to a more agreeable position is advisable. In the absence of a defined etiology, iliopsoas tendon release offers adequate pain relief and return to function in a majority of patients. Lakowitz et al. review anterior iliopsoas impingement after total hip arthroplasty. They state that most patients with iliopsoas impingement often require surgical treatment with options including iliopsoas tendon release or resection, removal of protruding cement or screws, and acetabular revision. O'Sullivan et al. review 16 cases of iliopsoas impingement following primary total hip arthroplasty. Only one of the cases was secondary to a malpositioned acetabular component, with the other 15 cases being attributed to altered anatomy of the iliopsoas tendon as a result of the surgery. These 15 patients underwent iliopsoas tendon release and all had improvement in pain and function following surgery. Nunley et al. reviewed 27 patients with a presumed diagnosis of iliopsoas impingement following total hip arthroplasty who were treated with fluoroscopically guided injections of the iliopsoas bursa. The average modified Harris hip score in the patients who underwent injection improved. However, 30% required an additional injection and 22% underwent surgical release for continued pain. Moving on to the next question. A 57-year-old man undergoes total hip arthroplasty and has an uncomplicated early postoperative course and a normal neurovascular status is documented. However, on postoperative day 2, he develops a progressive foot drop that increases over the next 24 hours. Postoperative repeat radiographs of the hip arthroplasty are unrevealing. There is no suggestion of swelling of the thigh to suggest a subfascial wound hematoma. 
What is the next most appropriate step? And the choices are 1. MRI of the lumbar spine, 2. MRI of the knee joint, 3. Electromyography and nerve conduction velocity studies of the sciatic nerve, 4. AP and lateral lumbar spine radiographs, and 5. Venous Doppler of the lower extremity. So spinal stenosis is commonly found in patients with degenerative arthritis of the hip joint and would be a strong possibility for causing a foot drop if the radiographs do not reveal a dislocation or other direct mechanical cause for the sciatic nerve compromise. So the correct answer to this question is 1. MRI of the lumbar spine. Moving on to the next question. A 52-year-old man who weighs 325 pounds is wheelchair-bound from severe degenerative arthritis of the left hip. 24 hours after cementless total hip arthroplasty, he develops shortness of breath and evaluation shows a saddle pulmonary embolus. The patient is started on anoxaparin sodium at 150 milligrams every 12 hours. Two days later, the patient's hematocrit is 20% despite four units of transfused packed cells, and he now has developed a complete sciatic nerve palsy. What is the best course of action? And the choices are 1. Emergent exploration of the sciatic nerve. 2. Transfusion to raise the hematocrit to 30% and sequential neurovascular examinations. 3. Placement of a vena cava filter. Halt anticoagulation, blood transfusion, and exploration of the sciatic nerve. 4. Transfusion to raise the hematocrit to 30%, continued administration of anaxoparin, and sequential neurovascular examinations and five, placement of a temporary vena cava filter and exploration of the sciatic nerve. The purpose of this question is to draw attention to the early risks of therapeutic anticoagulation that will be instituted by an intensivist or pulmonologist to treat a life-threatening pulmonary embolus. The temporary vena cava filter is a recent innovation but will effectively reduce the risk of further pulmonary emboli. This requires reversal of anticoagulation for safe insertion of the filter and creates a safe situation for additional surgical solutions. Sciatic nerve compromise was caused by the expanding hematoma in this patient, which could be mitigated by exploration both to assess the nerve and to remove a large hematoma that presents its own long-term risks. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Placement of a vena cava filter, halt anticoagulation, blood transfusion, and exploration of the sciatic nerve. Moving on to the next question. Effective management of heterotopic ossification following total hip arthroplasty should include which of the following? And the choices are 1. Indomethacin treatment for 10 days postoperatively. 2. Immediate excision of established heterotopic ossification followed by radiation therapy or indomethacin. 3. Postoperative administration of ethyl hydroxydiphosphonate. 4. Preoperative administration of radiation therapy one week before surgery, and 5. Postoperative administration of radiation therapy. So, postoperative administration of ethyl hydroxydiphosphonate results in delay of mineralization of osteoid, but ultimately heterotopic ossification formation is not decreased. In addition, the delay in mineralization does not improve range of motion of involved hips. Indomethacin has proven to be an effective long term therapy. To be most effective, radiation therapy must be done in the immediate postoperative period. So the correct answer to this question is 5, postoperative administration of radiation therapy. Moving on to the next question. A 46-year-old man reports occasional squeaking of his hip two years after undergoing an uneventful total hip arthroplasty. History reveals no pain, physical examination cannot reproduce audible squeaking, and radiographs show appropriate implant position. 
What is the most appropriate management? And the choices are 1. Revise the cup bearing to polyethylene. 2. Revise the cup bearing to polyethylene and replace the femoral head with a metal design. 3. Increase the cup abduction angle. 4. Decrease the cup abduction angle. And 5. Continue routine follow-up and observation. So in the absence of component malpositioning, hip pain, or other compelling reasons to reoperate, a squeaking ceramic bearing is not an indication for revision surgery. The patient can be reassured and observed. Hopefully, with a better understanding of acoustic phenomena following ceramic total hip arthroplasty, this complication can be minimized. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Continue routine follow-up and observation. Moving on to the next question. An 83-year-old man with a history of diabetes mellitus reports abdominal pain on postoperative day number 3 following a total hip arthroplasty. The patient reports having a bowel movement the prior evening. Examination reveals that the abdomen is distended but non-tender. What is the next best step in management? And the choices are 1. Rectal examination for occult blood. 2. Insertion of a nasogastric tube with lavage to identify blood in the gastric contents. 3. Radiograph of the abdomen. 4. Ultrasound of the abdomen. And 5. CT of the abdomen. So the patient has risk factors, symptoms, and signs of Ogilvy syndrome of acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. This unusual but potentially catastrophic complication is characterized by functional colonic obstruction without an associated mechanical blockage. This disorder has been associated with advanced age, male gender, the use of narcotic pain medications, and patients who have undergone hip arthroplasty. The first step in management of any complication is diagnosis, and the diagnosis is most rapidly made using radiographs that show dilation of the large intestine. So the correct answer to this question is 3, radiograph of the abdomen. Moving on to the next question. A 72-year-old man undergoes an uncomplicated cementless total hip arthroplasty for advanced osteoarthritis. At his six-week postoperative follow-up, he has minimal pain and is progressing well with his mobility. Radiographs show early formation of Brooker grade 3 heterotopic bone around his hip. What is the best treatment of heterotopic bone at this time? And the choices are 1. Observation, repeat radiographs, and re-examination in 6 weeks. 2. A 14-day course of indomethacin. 3. A 4-week course of indomethacin. 4. Plan for a return to the operating room at 10 weeks for excision of the heterotopic bone. And 5. Arrange urgently for 800 centigrade of radiation to the soft tissues and areas of heterotopic bone around the hip with shielding of the implants. So the development of heterotopic bone occurs early after hip arthroplasty. The process begins within days after surgery. Therefore, prophylactic treatment must be in the early postoperative period. That is either preoperative radiation given within 24 hours of surgery or postoperative radiation given within 72 hours of surgery or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs given postoperatively for 7 to 21 days. Longer duration has not been shown to be of any additional benefit. At 6 weeks, prophylactic treatment with NSAIDs or radiation is no longer effective. Surgery at 10 weeks would be premature because the patient is currently asymptomatic with regards to the heterotopic bone, and surgery prior to full maturation of the bone may increase the risk for more abundant recurrence of bone. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Observation, repeat radiographs, and re-examination in 6 weeks. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following statements most accurately describes the risk of ileus following total joint arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Older age decreases the risk. 2. Male gender decreases risk. 
Three, the risk is roughly 1% in total joint arthroplasty patients. Four, the risk more commonly occurs in total knee arthroplasty patients than in total hip arthroplasty patients. And five, a history of abdominal surgery has no effect on the risk. So the risk of postoperative ileus is noted to be higher in patients undergoing total hip arthroplasty than patients undergoing total knee arthroplasty. Older age, male gender, and a history of abdominal surgery have been identified as risk factors. So the correct answer to this question is 3. The risk is roughly 1% in total joint arthroplasty patients. Moving on to the next question. A 77-year-old man with a history of mild renal insufficiency and atrial fibrillation on warfarin therapy is scheduled to undergo a left total hip arthroplasty. He previously underwent a right total hip arthroplasty with development of significant heterotopic bone that resulted in limitation of motion. What is the most appropriate form of prophylactic treatment to minimize the formation of heterotopic bone on his left hip? And the choices are 1. Postoperative endomethacin for 3 weeks. 2. Postoperative endomethacin for 6 weeks. 3. No treatment indicated can treat later if heterotopic bone forms. 4. 800 centigrade of radiation given to the periprosthetic soft tissues preoperatively on the morning of surgery and 5. 400 centigrade of radiation given to the periprosthetic soft tissues day 2 postoperatively. So this question centers on the prophylactic treatment to reduce the risk of heterotopic bone formation. Prophylaxis is indicated because he has already demonstrated bone formation with his prior hip arthroplasty, which places him at increased risk for developing heterotopic bone on the contralateral side. He's on warfarin and has renal insufficiency, which makes the use of NSAIDs contraindicated. The recommended dose is 600 to 800 centigrade of radiation given within 24 hours of surgery, preoperatively, or 72 hours postoperatively. So the correct answer to this question is 4. 800 centigrade of radiation given to the periprosthetic soft tissues preoperatively on the morning of surgery. And moving on to the final question for this topic, a metal-on-metal -metal bearing used for total hip arthroplasty shows which of the following properties. And the choices are 1. Baseline serum ion levels increase with increasing activity levels. 2. The risk of cancer is substantially increased. 3. Linear ion production increases over time. 4. Ions produced are excreted primarily through the kidney. And 5. Nickel is the most prevalent ion released into circulation. So activity levels do not affect cobalt and chromium ion levels, which are the bulk of serum ion levels. The majority of ions are produced in the run-in period in the first several years. A gradual reduction in ion levels occurs thereafter. The kidneys are responsible for the bulk of clearance from the serum, and to date there is no relationship of cancer to ion levels in the serum. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Ions produced are excreted primarily through the kidney. That's all for this question review session about opiates and analgesic medications, as well as THA other complications. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.